It's a good question, actually, and something I've wanted to put to bed for a long time because people have quite often said, oh, well, there's no, re- there's no report on that actually happening. And um, we did speak to on the Lady Vanishes podcast, which is the podcast about my mum. We called Graham Childs, who was the police officer who took my report at Byron Bay Police. And I asked him that question. And I said, would it have been the case that if you had called me to tell me that you'd found me, that you would have recorded that? And he said, look, I'd like to think so, but it seems I may have dropped the ball on that. And I want to tell everybody who's listening to my story that it was definitely a male who rang me, 100%. And it was definitely shortly after I went to Byron Bay. And in my opinion, it was the same person I'd spoken to at police station when I went in and reported her missing. Welcome to today's podcast episode. This is part one of my conversation with Sally Layden. Sally is the daughter of missing woman Marion Barter, and I'm going to share a little bit more information and context about this disappearance with you in just a minute. But I want to make it very clear before today's episode truly starts that this episode may be triggering and upsetting for some listeners. I am sure many of you have heard of this case of Marion Barter disappearing because it's been the focus, that's the whole purpose of the podcast, The Lady Vanishes, which so many people around the world have just become fascinated by because it's truly a shocking thing to just listen to and understand that this is the reality of Marion's family. It's so hard to even conceptualize this investigation that has been unfolding. And I was really grateful to have the opportunity to sit down and speak with Sally. I always find, you know, the topic of true crime and true crime as a genre, one of those kind of difficult topics because there's certainly a huge part of me that bristles at the thought of true crime being entertainment But the thing that I have found so helpful, I guess, with the Lady Vanishes podcast is that it's not about glorifying someone who did something bad. This is truly the quest to uncover what has happened to Marion Barter, and it is still unfolding. You'll hear Sally share in this conversation that she was unsure where that podcast was going to take them, and she could never have predicted the way that it's unfolded. So it's much better to hear it from Sally, but I did want to give you a little bit of context for those of you who perhaps haven't listened to the Lady Vanishes podcast, and there are so many episodes to listen to, and I definitely recommend you jump over and click follow on that podcast series and listen to each and every episode. It may take you a little bit to get through them all, and it's heavy and it's hard at times and shocking and confronting. But it really is, I guess, interesting in the way of understanding different elements that were at play 26 years ago that we can still benefit from learning about now. That's kind of been something that I have found really interesting throughout listening to the whole series of The Lady Vanishes is 26 years ago, there was a lot of misogyny and a lot of dismissal of Marion Barter being a missing person. And that stuff still happens today. And I think that we can learn a lot from that. We can learn a lot from the biases that exist and even just unpacking coercive control in a relationship and what it might look like for someone who was in a vulnerable situation. But 26 years ago, we didn't have the language for what was happening. So I'm going to share some information with you directly from the Sally Layden website. And I've also put a link in our show notes so that you can jump on over and check the website out for yourself. The mysterious disappearance of Marion Barter is a haunting tale that begins in 1997 and has left investigators and loved ones grappling with unanswered questions for decades. 
Marion, a former school teacher from Australia, embarked on a journey to Europe, particularly Luxembourg and the United Kingdom. And Marion vanished without a trace. Marion was not your typical missing person. Described as vivacious and adventurous, she decided to explore the world on her own. Her decision to travel overseas was abrupt, leading her to sell her house at a loss and quickly and give away items to family and friends. What was intended to be a spirited adventure, however, turned into a perplexing mystery when Marion's communications abruptly ceased, leaving her daughter Sally in a state of bewilderment and anguish. And you will hear in my conversation with Sally, Sally shares the very last moment that she had communicating with her mum. Just quickly, a word from today's sponsors. Unless, of course, you're one of our Venti members. In that case, there are no ads and your episode is about to keep playing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The timeline leading up to her disappearance unfolds against the backdrop of her life here in Australia. Marion had been a teacher, dedicating herself to shaping young minds and achieving accolades for her work, including the runner-up of the Australian Teacher of the Year Award. Beneath the surface, though, there seemed to be unfulfilled dreams and a longing for something more. In the late 1990s, at an age where many might settle into the comforts of routine, Marion chose to embrace the unknown. Her journey took her to Luxembourg and the UK, countries both rich with tapestry of history and culture. However, it was in this foreign land that Marion seemingly vanished, leaving behind a trail of uncertainty. The last confirmed contact with Marion Barter was in the form of a phone call to Sally in late July 97. From that point forward, her whereabouts became an intricate puzzle that would baffle investigators, tug at the hearts of loved ones, and capture the attention of a global audience intrigued by the inexplicable mystery. Sally, Marion's daughter, became the torchbearer in the quest for answers, fueled by love, concern, and an unwavering determination to unravel the truth. Sally embarked on a journey that transcended physical and emotional boundaries. Her search for her mum became a personal odyssey, leading her to retrace her mum's step in Luxembourg and the UK and to unearth the fragments of Marion's life that may hold the keys to the mystery. As Sally delved deeper into the investigation and joined forces with Seven News and created the Lady Vanishes podcast, they discovered the emergence of an online community of sleuths. These amateur detectives connected through forums, social media, and a shared passion. They dedicated themselves to unraveling the Marion Barter case. United by a commitment to justice and an insatiable curiosity, these digital detectives combed through information, analyzed data, and engaged in discussions that often brought fresh perspectives to the table. The Marion Barter case became a captivating puzzle for these sleuths, and their efforts transformed the investigation into a collaborative and dynamic pursuit. The digital realm became a space where information was shared, leads were explored, and the collective wisdom of the crowd was harnessed to shed light on overlooked aspects of the case. Investigations unearthed Marion Barter had changed her name to Florabella Natalia Marion Remarkle prior to her disappearance. This discovery set off a chain of events 
leading super sleuth Joni Condos finally to connect the name of a Lonely Hearts advertisement in a French-Australian newspaper with the surname Remarkle. This discovery started what would be a snowball of new information that led to the identification of a significant person of interest and triggered an ongoing coronial inquest unearthing victims of a devious con artist from across the globe. The story of Marion Barter is not merely a tale of disappearance, it's a narrative that explores the complexities of human relationships, unfulfilled aspirations, and the enduring power of a familial bond. Marion's decision to step into the unknown mirrors the universal human desire for exploration and self-discovery, yet it's the unanswered questions surrounding her disappearance that elevate this story from a personal tragedy to a gripping mystery that has resonated with people around the world. The Marion Barter case is a poignant reminder of the profound impact that a single individual's disappearance can have on those left behind. It raises questions about the nature of identity, the fragility of human connections, and the thin line between adventure and the unknown. As Sally continues her quest for answers, and the community of sleuths persist in their digital detective work, the story of Marion Barter remains an open book, waiting for the final chapters to be written and the mystery to be solved. This is a true story that unravels as stranger than fiction. It follows a daughter's relentless search for answers in the face of closed doors, red tape, and ambiguous loss. If you have listened to all of the episodes over on the Lady Vanishes podcast, you'll understand how you just can't fit enough context into an introduction of an episode, because truly, as you listen to the episodes one after the other, you just can't predict what's coming next. And this truly has united women across the globe to uncover what happened to Marion Barter? And Sally is so incredibly determined. I just adored speaking with Sally. She's incredibly inspirational in so many ways. And it's just a very honest and vulnerable conversation about a truly distressing thing that has happened to her and her family. And as I just mentioned, there are so many knock-on effects Marion has been missing for 26 years. You'll hear Sally talk about where the case is at in part two of the conversation as well. But I wanted to separate this conversation into two episodes because it deserves it. I mean, Sally deserves all of the airtime. Marion Barter deserves all of the airtime. But it's such a big conversation with so many different levels of complexities to even wrap your mind around. And I just am in awe of Sally and her team and everything that they have been able to achieve. So with that little bit of context, and again, I urge you to check out the resources in the show notes. I would now like to introduce Sally Layden for part one of our conversation Part two will be live very soon for you. So keep an eye out, press follow on the podcast so that you do get that automatic update and that episode lands in your podcast library for you because episode two is just as wonderful as the first part of our conversation. Sally, as I was saying to you before we hit record, one, I am just so in awe of your dedication and your commitment and also, I guess, your determination to uncover what has happened to your mum. And the second thing I was saying to you before I pressed record was that as a listener, every time I hear something about your mum's case, I am enraged because there is so much dismissal, dismissal of you in the early days when you were trying to locate your mum and also dismissal of your mum's validity as a person. Like it seems as though there was such a misogynistic lens put on things and it was like, no, no, your mum's been married before, so she is capable of running away and marrying someone else. 
And it's that dismissal that just makes me so mad. So I can only imagine how mad it makes you. Uh, it's it's very frustrating and I found it very upsetting, especially at the beginning when we sort of went public with it and it was always repeated. It was like it was on repeat, you know, oh, she's been married three times and she's capable of this behaviour and she's 51 and, mm-hmm. you know, making assumptions about a person that they've never met before. And that was very difficult for me to process and manage because I kept hearing that on repeat. Um, and, you know, I knew I knew my mum and I knew her situations, you know. Um, it, it wasn't an easy ride for her and I know why she uh, had breakdowns in her marriages. Those people do not. Um, and, um, you know, I feel like, I was pushed to the side multiple times from multiple different people, and that includes my mum's family, the police, um, you know, no one really wanted to talk about it with me. So I found myself sort of just shutting out and just winding myself back into a bit of a hole and going, okay, well, I'm not really sure how to speak about this and not be judged or speak about it and be heard. And, um, you know, that's when... I was sort of found myself in a bit of a position, I guess, where my grandmother, my mum's mum, was elderly in her 90s and still living in her home and that no one ever spoke to me about it. So I would go and visit her on the monthly, take my kids up there. Um, she, she became a big part of my kids' world as well um, and I grew up there. So, you know, when I go back to Moffat Beach at Caloundra, it just brings back all the memories of me growing up with my mum and my brother and us going on holidays there every single school holidays because, remember, mum was a teacher so we had lots of school holidays and we'd jump in the car and drive to Caloundra every chance mum got. And so, you know, to hear people making those sorts of claims and comments about who my mum was as a person, and it, essentially that reflected on me as a human being as well because they were saying, well, you're not worthy and she didn't love you and she didn't want you. And those words are so cutting and so dangerous to say to somebody, um, you know, and my brother's not here. He took his own life. Um, after, you know, I'm, I'm not sure why Owen took his own life. I can't answer that question, but um, I know that it was only a few years after mum went missing and I do know that he told my dad that um, when he met with mum at our engagement party, he said to her, for the first time in my adult life, I feel like I've got my mum again. And then for her to disappear and then for us to be told that she never wanted to see us again, I can, I, I feel that that, knowing my brother very well, I feel that was the the um you know the icing on the cake for him the rejection that you both would have felt would have been just so extreme and it almost seems like there was a degree of gaslighting happening as well for both of you too in terms of people saying to you well no she has left on her own accord and not just you know family which of course would be really really hard but also authorities, when you got in touch, when you were trying to uncover where your mum was, you were receiving information that, no, your mum's actually returned and she doesn't want anything to do with you. Uh, And I was a young 24-year-old as well, I would say. You know, I look at my 22-year-old daughter and she's way more mature than I was at 24. So I really just took on what I was being told. I, I literally just thought, okay, I've, I've done the right thing. I've gone to the police. I've said there's a problem here. My mum is supposed to be overseas and she's got money coming out of her bank account here in Byron Bay. I'm concerned for her welfare. There's something wrong here. And, you know, it was dismissed. And of course, at 24 years old, I think regardless of how mature you are at 24, but particularly if you do consider yourself to be a bit young at that time, at 24, you would go to the police you would say, look, this is all the information I have and you pass it over to them because you're 24. And to know that, you know, she didn't even end up being on the missing persons registry, it wasn't investigated at all to the extent that it should have been, is just so disheartening. Yeah, it was, it's, it was, it's been a ride of hit after hit. I would say. So, you know, I only found out that she wasn't on the missing persons register because someone who was following my page 
went on to have a look and said, hang on a minute, your mum's not on there. And I went, what? What are you talking about? And so it's, you know, every time I've had an opportunity to move forward and learn something or project the story to try and get some answers, the door's been firmly shut in my face and, um, you know, it's just that's just been the ride that I've been on. And there's no manual on how to do this. So there's no checklist for you to follow and go, oh, I need to confirm she's on that missing persons list because you've done everything that we're told to do as citizens. You've got a problem, you report it to the police, you then trust in the system. So that's really challenging, I'm sure. With people commenting to you that your mum had been married multiple times, the undertone there is that she has the ability to be reckless. Whereas if people actually pause to consider it, it's the ability to be led. It's the ability to love quickly. It's a vulnerability. And to me, that should alert everyone. This is potentially a vulnerable woman who is being taken advantage of. 100%. And I think part of this journey for me and having to dig deep into my mum's personal life and what she's done and how she's done it and reflect on certain things that I know and experienced myself, but maybe as a 10-year-old, I've had to go back to those times and pull myself through those again and go, actually, there's a coercion there or there is a gaslight there that I never experienced because we didn't have those words. Even when mum went missing, you know, coercive control wasn't a thing. Um, So there wasn't a label for it. Um, It was just that a woman who's capable of this behaviour because she's been married three times and divorced three times. And, um, you know, I've had to – I've used the example of my stepfather, Ray Barter, and, you know – Owen and I had been down at our dad's. We'd been there for the weekend and she came and picked us up from the train station um, and we got in the car and it was probably a three-minute drive from the train station to our house. And she picked us up and she said to us, I've got something to tell you both. Um, There's a man coming to live with us. And so I turned to Owen in the back seat and went, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? Anyway, she said, look, I don't remember much more of that conversation, word perfect, but along the lines of his name's Ray, he's there in the kitchen when you get home. So we walked in the house and I remember Owen and I beelined it out for the trampoline and jumping on the trampoline you could see into the kitchen window and he was just standing there cooking. And I remember very clearly he turned up with an Adidas bag full of clothes. That was it. And... I think, you know, from my memory, mum told me they'd been on a few dates and he needed somewhere to go because he was leaving his wife and his three boys and mum welcomed him in. And I stop and think about that in today as a 50-year-old woman with three children. I just don't know if I would have done that. I don't know if I would do that. And I, I see that as a an openness in my mum for someone who really loved being in love and loved the opportunity to go to the theatre with somebody or go to the ballet. And, you know, I've listened to mum's sisters talk about how mum tried to change Ray. Um, and I think that's an unfair um, – I think that's an unfair – vision of what she was trying to do because she was trying to welcome him into her world just the same as he welcomed her into his world which was showing dogs I mean mum and I were dragged from pillar to post going to dog shows every weekend as a teenager I'm telling you that was not that fun um you know I could have thought of a million things I'd rather be doing but we did it every weekend and she brought her school stuff along and sat there and welcomed herself into his world you know so it was very much both a both way street two way street um in that scenario but just demonstrated to me how easy she could openly welcome someone into her world and very quickly yes and at a base level wanting to be in love and wanting to be loved and I mean I know nowadays, 2023, there's still a lot of stigma for single mums, let alone back then. There would have been so much stigma surrounding your mum being a single mum. So it makes sense to me that whilst, you know, on paper you go, of course, if someone was thinking more rationally and, you know, you probably wouldn't move someone into your house that fast. You just wouldn't do it now. But 
it makes sense when you think about the lens of so much stigma surrounding single moms. And she just would have wanted to give you guys that family unit. And it would have just been like, oh, here it is. Here's my happy ending. And just because she was vulnerable and open doesn't mean she was unstable. You know, unfortunately, sometimes someone who has a really open heart and a lot of empathy does get taken advantage of and does have more of a willingness to believe. Mm. Which is sad, really, when you think about it, because at the end of the day, that sort of turns on her, doesn't it? You know, her parents or her dad, I remember he used to call her marrying Marion. And I think that's become an important part of this investigation because in my head, I think to myself, okay, well, I'm the same age my mum was. So next year I turned 51. My mum went missing when she was 51. So that kind of spins my head a little bit. But as the same age, and if I was in the same position and I had people saying that to me and I'd met somebody and it was my fourth potential marriage. I mean, she's ticked that she's married on her incoming passenger card. So let's assume she got married or she thinks she got married. Um, maybe she didn't want to tell anybody because she didn't want the backlash. Fear of judgment. From, yeah, 100%. And she wanted to make people proud of her. And, you know, I think that she that was seen as a, a weakness in my mum that she could fall so easily and be somebody who could fall in love. And, you know, it's interesting listening to her sisters talk in the, in the inquest because they're talking about how their parents always said you only get married once and you have all these stigmas that you have to abide by. And, you know, that wasn't my mum's character. And I think it's unfair to, to judge people or make judgment of people, um, whether that be in 1997 or in, you know, 2000 and, uh, 23, it, no one should make judgment on people and um, that's that's been a sad part of the journey. Yeah, absolutely. There's a real stigma and a real bias towards people um, that, that have been married multiple times and it's absolutely ridiculous in any context, but especially in the context of a missing person, to use it as some sort of character assassination is insane. Well, it's, yeah, definitely shouldn't be the, the ruse as to why she's missing. During the time sort of in the early days after you reported your mum missing and you were trying to locate her, you did receive information about the fact that she had been sighted and she didn't want to actually be be found or be known. Upon reflection, I mean, from what I understand listening to the podcast episodes, there's no record of a police officer saying that to you. Is that right? Yep. Is there there any train of thought surrounding the fact that maybe that was someone who was involved in your mum's disappearance getting in touch with you or at that time were you certain it was a police officer and it's just been something that's not been handled well on their end? Yeah, it's a good question actually and something I've wanted to put to bed for a long time because people have quite often said, oh, well, there's there's no report on that actually happening. And um, we did speak to on the Lady Vanishes podcast, which is the podcast about my mum. We called Graham Childs, who was the police officer who took my report at Byron Bay Police. And I asked him that question. And I said, would it have been the case that if you had called me to tell me that you'd found me, that you would have recorded that? And he said, look, I'd like to think so, but it seems I may have dropped the ball on that. And I want to tell everybody who's listening to my story that it was definitely a male who rang me, 100%. And it was definitely shortly after I went to Byron Bay. And in my opinion, it was the same person I'd spoken to at police station when I went in and reported her missing. His voice sounded the same. He didn't have an accent. It was the same person in my head. Um, And so that's why I've always gone down that pathway of the police called me and told me that. Now, there's records that have come out since through the inquest inquiry and through the homicide investigation, finding that Queensland police had found some notebooks from some police officers that were looking into the case. And they haven't actually mentioned me in any of the documentation. They've just got my phone number there and said a long call. So, therefore, the assumption is that they spoke to me and they were calling me the informant. And I have no recollection of that happening. So um, I also want to say that at that time, 
the stress and the anxiety that I must have been feeling, like I know I don't really think about that so much, but you know, in talking to Joni, who has been helping me hugely over the last four years, you know, she comes from that background and she says to me, the stress that you must have been under is just outrageously, you know, not considered here because I'm being told that my mum's missing. I get told she doesn't want to ever see me again or talk to me again. She doesn't contact Owen for his um, for his birthday. I'm getting told by one of mum's sisters. I'm getting yelled at essentially saying, leave it alone. Why would you go and list her as a missing person? And so I've just, I'm starting to pedal backwards going, oh, okay, maybe, yep, maybe I'm wrong. Like I'll just sit here. And so that's why I kind of pushed it onto my grandfather and said, well, you're my senior authority here. You, you lead the way and I'll help you. But he was dying of cancer. And, you know, so he had his own issues that he was trying to grapple with and therefore it became very difficult. And then, you know, literally within a few years of mum missing, I lose my brother and I lose my grandfather. So I lost two major people in my world. I got married. I had my first baby. We're building a house. All massive stresses that any person under any normal circumstance would find challenging at some point or one or another. And I was dealing with a lot. And I didn't really have a support system except my husband, Chris. That's it. And my friends. It's a massive amount for one person or two people, you and Chris, to carry. Like it's huge. Yeah, I'm lucky. He he is very calm. Well, he's he's become less calm. <laughs> I would say through all of this and having to sit through inquests and whatnot. Um, but he is a very calm human, and he's a he's a good guy. Like he he's not reactive, so he balances me out very well. So if I'm being reactive to something or upset about something. He he doesn't come in with fire and spray me. He just chills me out and we move forward. And that's been the success of our marriage, I think, throughout um, the 25 years. We just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary last month. So, you know, I'm very lucky that we have each other because I also support him in a lot of ways as well. You know, he's lost his mum as well. And, um, you know, so we, we live a life where both our dads – don't live near us and um, they don't really have a lot to do in our family. Like they're not involved in the kids or anything like that. Whereas I know for a fact my mum would have been and Chris's mum definitely was, you know, and um, so it was a real it was a real shame when she passed away because um, and then when my grandmother passed away as well, my kids literally lost every female um, you know, what do you call Matriarch. it? That they, yeah, that they looked up to or they could talk to. Um, you know, it, it's. I feel sad for my kids. They don't have, you know, people in their world as family who they could fall on if they needed help and they wanted to walk outside of our five, you know, our group, our family network. Um, they don't really have that and that, that does break my heart as well. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. But we, Chris and I, do our best to manage it. I can imagine that has been a huge driving force as well for you, Sally, just the fact that you want to be able to give your kids those answers and uncover exactly what has happened. Well, I think that was kind of in my headspace that was the main thing. I had listened to a TV or watched a TV show a very, very long time ago, and it was about missing persons. And um, there was two sisters, and they were looking 
for their mum or their sister and I couldn't I can't remember but I remember the little boy in the show and he was crying and he he was very upset about this missing person and it was someone he's never met before and it really resonated with me because I thought I don't want my children to be sad and hurt and you know carry this burden for their lives because we don't know where she is. So I just felt at that time it was my time to push. I waited for my grandmother to pass away so she wasn't worried and stressed because I knew it would have worried her and upset her if I had gone public with it. But that was the only way I was going to find her or get some answers as to what's happened to her potentially. So, um, you know, that was really my driving force behind it. I didn't want to leave, you know, my children, if I'm if I pass away and she's still not found, I don't want them to feel there's a burden there that they have to carry on and keep going. I wanted to do this. I wanted to get it to an inquest so that it can be investigated properly and thoroughly, so that I can put it to rest and therefore my children can too. Have a memorial site for my mum, somewhere the kids can go and I can go to just sit and reflect and have some peace. Um, and I'm still fighting for that. I keep getting knocked back every time I turn around and suggest that we, we put a plaque here or plant a tree there. I'm just getting knocked back everywhere I turn. So that's also challenging for me right this second. Um, and, you know, I'm doing it on my own. I, it's not like I don't. Ha- I can't get anybody else to do that job. That's my job. And on top of everything else I'm juggling, it's hard. Where does the pushback and the no come from? Is that something that comes from the family or is that something more to do with the fact that it's still a criminal case? It's, I don't speak to the family. They, well, they don't speak to me. I haven't spoken to any of them for a very long time. So it's just coming from the people I'm I'm putting it forward to and for what reason or another, they're, they're not answering me or they just give me a flat out, no, sorry, we can't do that. And I don't know if it's because it's such a high profile case and they don't want the controversy. Um, you know, I even contacted TSS, which is the Southport school where mum was teaching and, you know, a listener actually suggested that maybe it would be a nice idea to have a an award that is in mum's name. So I sort of came up with the idea that maybe it could be a literary, a literacy award, you know, someone who's doing well in literature uh, because that would be right up mum's alley. And I proposed that to the school and I was happy to buy the trophy and whatever else. And they were like, oh, we don't really do things like that. So let me get back to you. Haven't heard hide nor hair. And I, I was like, wow, like I'm just trying to do something nice just for my mum, just to sit there and go, she was a person, she was a good person and something bad has happened to her and I just would like some recognition of that. Recognition and validation and your mum was a really valued member of that school as well from all accounts. Yeah, and she was the best teacher in Queensland just before she she was awarded. This is not opinion. She was awarded. Correct. Just... The fact that you have been carrying this burden for the last 26 years, of course, would bring an enormous amount of stress on your whole system. How have you managed to keep going forward? Because with every single podcast episode that the listener hears, there is a new twist. There is something that is just, you know, you just could not have imagined unfolding. How do you actually, I guess, cope with everything that's just been sent your way? That's a very good question. (laughs) I don't know exactly how to answer that, but I can tell you what I do do and whether that's, you know, I haven't really sat down and said, what do I do that makes me cope with this? But I can tell you that um, the followers and the listeners of the podcasts and Uh, And that goes for your podcast too because every podcast I do, we gain new followers and new listeners and they come on board and they reach out to me and I I absolutely love it. I have tendonitis in my thumb from being on my phone probably 
10 hours a day answering everybody's questions and answers and saying thank you and people sending me photos. I think it was my mum. And so there is a lot of stress that comes with that as well. But I kind of just roll with that. I don't try and take it on at the next level, if you know what I mean. I kind of keep myself balanced um, as best I can. And um, by doing that, I go to the gym a lot. And, you know, I mix that up a fair bit. I have a boxing and I really love punching the bag because that gives me a lot of energy to anything that's upset me or, you know, hurt me that day. I find that that's quite a release. And then I do Pilates and then I do yoga and um, then I do things like Metcon and, um, you know, an abs buns gun class with my girlfriend and I have coffee with her every Friday. And I just, I like having that structure because it actually gives me something to look forward to. I feel like my gym, I love my gym. Um, and it gives me, that's my mental, that's my mental health kick. You know, I feel like it's my time, especially on a Tuesday, I'll go and do my Pilates class and then I stay and do restorative yoga after that. And that's two hours and it's just myself. And I just really feel like that's an important, I've only just started doing that in the last six months, but it really helps me clear my head, keep going, keep moving uh, and keeping motivated. And the other thing I would say is, um, you know, I've got a great community in the the podcast, but my family are also amazing humans and my kids are excellent. They're, they're, we have a relationship, I think, that's very open and very much on the table. We have a, excellent dinner table conversations, um, sometimes I just get to the point where I'm laughing and they call it cry laughing because I start crying as I'm laughing and then they start laughing at me and it just gets worse. So it's not really, it's kind of funny, but um, the girls and their partners are there as well. And so we're very much a family of welcoming people in and building on that platform as well. So, you know, um, I've got great friends and um yeah, great kids too, as, along with Chris. And then one of the things I find myself doing is if there's a big moment of something coming up, I actually give myself tasks to do. And um, one of those was my daughter was turning 21 last year and we weren't planning on having anything big. We were just going to have a party for her and something small and it was right in that realm of me at the end of the inquest. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of angst. I'm getting shut doors still. No one's talking to me. And I just threw myself into this party and went, well, let's just have a party. So, you know, we had croupiers there and we had um, um, champagne flowing and we made, Ella and I made the cake together and I just dive straight in to doing these things and it gives me something to focus on to take myself out of the pressure cooker of what I'm in and it just puts, probably puts me in another pressure cooker, but a pressure cooker that I like and, you know, something that I really love doing. So, um, you know, or I plan a holiday and I'm sitting there and I just dive straight in and it just gives me this release of just something different to do. I, I, I love reading, but I can't sit and read because I'm just go, 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 go all the time. I just can't relax enough to sit down and do that. But I really relax when I'm planning and I'm organizing and I get told I'm a bit of a control freak when it comes to these things. But that's just me as a person, someone who actually just loves to plan and organize and, you know, it just makes my heart sing. I love it so much. Um, and I'm lucky because the kids actually just let me let me do it. <laughs> they don't ever push me back. But, um, you know, I think that is another part of my coping mechanism is, um, you know, focusing on positive things rather than focusing on the negative. Because I think if you focus on the negative all the time, that's bad energy and that is not good for your psyche and you need to, you know, not be putting yourself in that position. Um, so focus on the positive and do something that's fun and enjoyable that you like doing. Um, and that's the same with the gym. You know, going to the gym is, is good for my good for my head uh, and good for my mental headspace. So, you know, if I can help say that to share to someone, if they're in, finding themselves in a position where they just feel like it's a constant roundabout and that, that swing that you just – you can't get off. Um, you know, I remember those – do you remember those twirly things at the park that you jump yeah. on? 
you push and then you jump off them really while they were still going. Kind of reminds me of that a little bit. You know, if someone keeps pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, the faster and faster it goes, it's harder to jump off. But if you actually just slow yourself down a little bit, pull yourself away and go, what's something that's good for my head? What's something that's good for my energies um, and keep my head level? Um, and that's the, they're the things that I do to, to help with that. Yeah, and it makes so much sense because I can imagine there's always something to do when it comes to your mum's case. And there would always be so much adrenaline and energy and stress, like that stress response, that fight, flight, freeze coursing through your system. So if you actually force yourself to focus on something else, you can channel some of those emotions into that in a more positive way. You can take action. You can control something. You can create an outcome that you want. So I think that makes so much sense. And it's such a wonderful thing to share with our listeners, because whilst I doubt any of our listeners are in the same situation you're in, Sally, I'm sure a lot of them are finding themselves in challenging situations where they could easily get stuck in that negative thought pattern, stuck on that negative merry-go-round. So to actually go, you know what, I am purposefully going to redirect my attention and my focus into this way of channeling it. I think that's really valuable advice. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully no one has to go through what I go through. That's that's the hope I have for and foremost, but I know reality is that people do and there are people out there like me still trying to find their missing person and, you know, um, if I can give them some advice too and help, you know, always happy to chat. Finally, I'd like to say that, you know, I'd like to give some recognition to Joni Condos who has been helping me on the podcast because, as I said to you before, she has a um, a background in um, – Social work, uh, what, is it? Yeah, she's like it's in social work and in, you know, a coercive controlling kind of role and environment that she's experienced and explored. And, you know, she said herself coercive control wasn't a word that they used, but it was that tone mm-hmm. and that conversation that they were having. And um, she's been a massive support person for me. We talk every single day. Um, we talk multiple times a day sometimes and, you know, just having someone who understands and knows the story to the, to the T and then being able to actually communicate with her how I'm feeling, things that have happened, being open with her, I trust her um, and that's been really, really essential for me as well just to have that person who's outside of my family um, being able to talk to them and, and that person is Joni. So she's been awesome. Did you connect with Joni through the Facebook group? So she was listening to The Lady Vanishes. That's how we met. And she uh, heard about the name change with mum and being Ramakel, and that was a flag for her. She was like, that's a really unusual name. So she ran it through some um, online portals that she had been doing because she herself had had a missing person in her husband's family. So they had been working on that, trying to find his great-grandmother. And in doing so, she had learned some skills in um, doing these searches. So she just ran Ramakel through her her um, computer and found an ad that was placed. And turns out Rick Blum admits to writing that ad in the paper. So the story really took a very different swing. Um, I think we're at about, I don't know, we were probably up to the the third podcast that had been aired or fourth podcast that had been aired, but we'd done seven, I think. And realistically, I didn't know where we were going to go from there because we really hadn't found much. And we were just, you know, going off and searching leads that someone had said she was in this cult out the back of Whoop Whoop and um, sort of going and exploring these avenues because we really literally, I kept saying, we're leaving no stone unturned and I'm happy to do whatever I have to do to try and find the answers so that my kids don't have to. That kept coming back into my my space. So, um, so yeah, so the ad in the paper really threw everything on its head and then it sort of, we went, that's where we went to Luxembourg and did all these crazy things, things I've never thought I'd ever do in my life, but um, it has been definitely a roller coaster of emotions and stress and um, sleepless nights. So, 
but here we're here now. So, and I finally ticked the box of going to an inquest, which is the whole purpose I was sort of trying to get to was to do that. So, happy to say we're we're at the end of that now. There have been a few kind of super sleuths that have really taken an interest in your mum's disappearance and have really, really like taken action to help the case and move it forward. Oh yeah, there's a there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. I I created a group um, very early on, and like I can never answer the question as to why I decided that that was a good idea. It was just these people were showing me support in different ways. So one of them was a you know a support in Are you okay? How are you going today, Sal? And the other one was you know I can help you with the Facebook. You know I can help you answer questions. And at that point I was like that's amazing because I was answering probably you know a thousand plus messages a day trying to just and in my head I kept thinking these people are giving me their time and they're listening to my story I want to show them that I'm grateful that they're doing that and that their support gives me a fire in my belly to keep going and go right I've got people behind me now I can keep moving forward with this and I am doing the right thing and there's a validation in that as well I think because being told I was doing the wrong thing and leave it alone and don't touch it and leave it you know she's not missing or your mum doesn't want to ever see you ever again they're hard things to grapple with but when you've got people on you on your team as a way of speaking it keeps you going it keeps you you know I guess it's like people playing football at a stadium and the more the the crowd cheers for them the better they perform right it's it's giving you an undercurrent of encouragement and uh, care and concern which I really needed and I'm very grateful for from um, the Lady Vanishes community and those following mum's case. Thank you for listening to part one of my conversation with the incredible Sally Layden. Make sure you listen to part two of our chat because Sally and I talk about the things that perhaps were indicators that you just wouldn't even know were indications that something was going on for Marion. And it's only with the power of hindsight, with the perspective of now knowing what Sally knows that she's able to look back and go, huh, maybe that was something I should have paid a little more attention to. So we chat about that. We also talk about the inquest and where things stand today. There's still so much to be said. So please listen to part two of my conversation with Sally. Resources are in the show notes. Reach out to Sally. Let her know what you thought of today's episode. You can always reach me by DM jump on over to Sunroom as well. That's where we have all of the inner circle, very raw conversations and so much more. To make sure you don't miss part two of this very important conversation, please do press follow or subscribe to the podcast so that you receive automatic updates and part two will be with you very, very soon. Today's podcast episode was recorded on the land of the Bunjalung Nation. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.